This morning we're looking at hypocrisy and opposition. Hypocrisy from within the community of Jesus' followers, it actually threatened to undermine everything they were about. While opposition outside the community, it wanted to silence them. So it was a mess. God answered this hypocrisy and this opposition, though, in a shocking way. And it reminds us that God is not ours to control, but he is ours to trust. Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We'll pause there. You know, as Luke, the author of Acts, he communicates the story of Jesus' first followers. He keeps comparing this new community with the temple that was located in Jerusalem and all that the temple represented. Really what we see is a tale of two temples. Why? Because in Christ, God's people are the new temple. They're not a building, but they're a people. And so Luke continues to emphasize the way the early church was living as the true people of God, the true temple of God. And we're going to look at four specific things this morning. One, followers of Jesus living out their new identity. Two, hypocrisy threatens to wreck it. Three, opposition threatens to stop it. Four, followers of Jesus keep living out their new identity. First, followers of Jesus living out their new identity. The community of God's people. The new community of God's people. This is the community that God had always intended. Every so often, Luke, the author of Acts, presents this tiny summary of the early church. And here we have this beautiful description, we just read it, of what the church was like. They were one in heart and mind. There was this great unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had, even their hairbrush and toothbrush. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. The apostles or the sent ones, those uh, who were with Jesus in his ministry, they continued to testify to the resurrection. And that was their greatest responsibility. And it says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that what? What happened that God's grace was so evident and so powerfully at work in them? It says in verse 34 that there was no needy persons among them. There was no needy persons among them, and from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought that money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a generous and sacrificial community, a gracious and giving and compassionate community, a community that's looking out for the interests of others. Does that sound like anyone to you? Gracious and compassionate. 
looking out for the interests of others. Turn with me, if you, if you will, to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, as, as Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he writes, Therefore, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, well, do they have that? Yes, they do. He's saying, if you have any of these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in the very nature God, did not uh, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Go to verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We'll pause there. Paul's writing to the Philippian church the very same thing that the early church was practicing. Generosity, hospitality, love, unity. They weren't considering, they were considering others better than themselves. They were modeling Jesus because they were following Jesus. When you think about church, when you think about the church, what comes to mind? Do large crowds and large buildings, loud music, maybe a really charismatic personality out up front? What comes to mind? What characteristics define the church for you? My prayer, my hope, is that the things that define the early church would define us. That we would continue to walk with one heart, with one mind in unity. That we would share what we have. That we'd be generous towards one another. That we'd meet each other's needs. When we're moving together in the love of Christ, when we're united by the grace of God we've received, we're going to model and we're going to demonstrate the humility of Jesus. Now, what did the early church do? They, they took uh, the sale of property from time to time and the sale of homes, and they, they placed it at the apostles' feet, which meant to place it into a fund or at the apostles' discretion so that when the time came for a need to be met, they could discern whether or not they could meet that need, and they were able to meet that need. What a community does with its money says a lot about that community. It's no wonder the early church was able to give such a powerful testimony of the risen Christ. And they were living already sacrificial lives that modeled that they, they were following a sacrificial king. But the truth is, possessions have a way of possessing us. And we all struggle with this. But we're introduced to Barnabas. Joseph. He's given the nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement. Wouldn't you want that nickname? Now, interestingly, he's of the tribe of Levi, which is a tribe committed to the work of the temple. Do you remember I said this was a tale of two temples and that Luke continued to emphasize comparing the church with the temple? We're going to get to that more. But Barnabas is of the tribe of Levi. He's 
The, Le- the tribe of Levi was committed to the work of the temple, but Barnabas is presented as a positive example. He represents really the heartbeat of the early church here in this text. And the church, again, they're empowered by God's grace to live out their new identity as the temple of God, as the covenant community that God always intended to set up. That's who they are. They were actually doing what the early temple, what the earthly temple, rather, was supposed to be doing. What was the earthly temple supposed to be doing? To be a place of forgiveness, a place of sacrifice, a place of love and devotion and worship and community and prayer and holiness, the meeting of needs. And that's exactly what the early church was doing. So the scene presents this beautiful picture, an example in Barnabas, of one who lived that way. But the next scene presents a stark contrast. See, we, we have in this scene followers of Jesus living out their new identity, but the next scene presents this stark contrast and a serious threat to what the new, the, the, the new community was called to live and do. So number two, hypocrisy. It threatens to wreck this new community. Let's read about it. Starting in Acts chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We'll pause there. Okay, I get it. This is an uncomfortable story. It's uncomfortable for most people who read it. Now, if you've read the Bible for any length of time, you've encountered things that God does that makes you uncomfortable. It's easy for someone to read this story and say, this is not the way God is. The God of the Bible would not act that way. But in reality, what they mean is God as I conceive him would never do that. Del Ralph Davis, he writes this, and it should be on the screen here. We get used to thinking there is a dull predictability about God. Sometimes we may even begin to think that because we follow a certain system of doctrine or belief system, we therefore know what God will and won't do. Is God free to be who he is? Or do we try to make him our prisoner 
and subject uh, to what we think he should be. A Christian must keep asking himself, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? We should keep asking ourselves that, even when we read difficult stories like this one. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they didn't have to sell their property. They didn't have to give the funds to the church. They decided beforehand, they conspired together what they would do. They would sell their property and keep some of it for themselves. But say they were giving it all away. Why were they doing this? Was it for recognition? Was it out of pride? Was it for applause or position? Did they see Barnabas uh, receiving that nickname and wanting a nickname too? I mean, was it out of arrogance? Was it greed? Was it deception? Yes. It was deception. It was hypocrisy. There was greed involved. And there was arrogance involved. It says that they kept back a portion of the sale. And it's the identical word used to describe the action of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. We're not going to turn there. You can read about uh, the situation uh, with uh, Israel. But I want to tell you, Achan was part of the nation of Israel when they defeated the city of Jericho. Joshua had led the way. And no one was to keep any of the items from the city of Jericho. But Achan, he, he disregarded God's command. He justified uh, what he deserved or what he thought he deserved. And he hid, he kept back some of the plunder of, of the city against God's command. He actually buried it in his tent. He, he hid it, thinking he could hide it from God. And it was a threat to Israel's entire mission. They couldn't go on without dealing with this sin. And in the same way, God is doing a new thing through the early church. He's establishing a new community, a new temple. And Ananias and Sapphira, what they're doing is a threat to the church's mission and witness. It's an affront to what God has decided to do through his new people. And interestingly, in Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, we see Aaron's sons, priest Aaron, who, who uh, you know, when the tabernacle was given in the desert, they were, they were given a way, a prescribed way of approaching God. But Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they approached God their own way instead of the way God prescribed. Two people who approached the temple and approached worship the way they thought was best, and they died. That was at the beginning of a new work that God was doing through his people. Now, fast forward thousands of years, and here we are. The age of the church. The Spirit poured out on God's people, a new community, the new temple. And God has prescribed a way for them to live and to follow Jesus. And two are deciding to do it on the way they think is best. If the church is the new temple, then they need to take that identity seriously. Here is the Holy One of all, the one who will right every wrong, who will judge cheating and lying and deceit and injustice, and he decides to bring judgment then and there. And it's sobering. Nobody's like smiling, they're terrified. In, in, in verse 3, Peter discerns who's ultimately behind the choices that Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira made. Who's behind this? Satan. Satan is behind this. What does he say in verse 3? 
Then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Satan was actively opposing this new community, wanted to destroy its witness, attempting to weaken it and destabilize it and undermine God's plan. Peter tells Ananias that he has lied not only to God's people, but to the Holy Spirit and to God. And so here is a classic passage that helps us to appreciate that the Holy Spirit truly is God. Because as they lied to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. And so we see evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit here. After Ananias heard uh, this uh, pronouncement from Peter, he falls dead. Peter didn't curse him. Peter didn't call fire down out of heaven to strike him down. It was divine judgment, though. Three hours later, his wife has the opportunity to make things right, and she doesn't. And again, there's nothing easy about this story. It shocks us as it should. And we wonder, man, is Peter callous? I mean, no. Peter's not callous here. He's actually taking the holiness of God seriously. He's refusing to treat this hypocrisy as if it's no big deal. It's a big deal. And this is a lesson that we need to learn. We should ask, what is Luke, the author of Acts? What is God, the capital A author of Acts, teaching us through it all? Why is this story given to us? Again, God is doing something new. The mission of his people is to bear witness with their lives and their lips. And this hypocrisy, this deceit, is a direct attack on that mission. And God brought judgment. How did the people at that time respond? Because that should clue us in on how we should respond. Two times it mentions in verse 5 and verse 10 that they responded with great fear. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Of course it did. God is not ours to control. He's holy. He's concerned for his glory, his fame, his renown. And, and we're, if we're going to represent him, it's very important that we're concerned for his glory as well. God's people are called to holiness and we're accountable for it. So how casually do we treat sin? How indifferent are we to hypocrisy? You know, it's easy for sinful behavior to, to go on and, and be unaddressed in our own lives for us to ignore it, to overlook it, to justify it. But that's dangerous. Deceit, it's so deceitful. That's the problem with it. Hypocrisy, it's, it's hard to call out because well, masks are hard to see. We cover things up. We, we need to take this story for what it is. It's a warning. Do we fear God? Do we have a worshipful awe? You know, John goes on to write, perfect love casts out fear. And so we say, well, should we fear God? Listen, as someone who's in Christ, we don't need to fear final judgment. We're in Christ. We don't need to fear separation from God. But do we fear him and walk in reverence and awe of him? That we, will, we answer to him. That he's our, he's our God and he's holy. He's without sin, and he's called us to holiness. He's called us to a life that reflects something of his character. Do we want to fear him? 
You know, the foundation to our devotion and express worship to God should be a sincere love for him and a sincere fear of him that culminates in expressed devotion, walking in, in, in worshipful awe and reverence. You are wholly other than me. You're so different than me, perfect in all your ways, and yet you've drawn me to yourself through your son. What does that do to you? Well, we worship him with joy, sure, but do we walk with reverence before him, or are we just casual and flippant with God as if he's like our, you know, our Facebook friend? I don't know. What does this story do to us? In Isaiah chapter 44, uh, Isaiah writes, speaking for God, God is speaking through Isaiah, rather, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. So Isaiah is basically saying, uh, God is basically saying, is there someone else like me? Let him stand. There's no one like me, God is saying. There's someone else li- like me, let him speak up. So let me ask you this, why can't God be holy and loving all at once? Well, he can, and he is. God continues to meet people right where they're at in their brokenness and continues to bring healing. We see another little picture of the early church. We'll keep going in verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which was a section of uh, the temple area. There was the, the temple proper uh, that only certain priests could enter, and then there was a surrounding courtyard, and then a courtyard beyond that. And so this was a gathering, a public gathering place that the church would meet, a large space. No one else dared to join them, even though they were, hi- they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. God is still doing a work. He's still doing a mighty work through his people. He's continuing to meet people where they are in their brokenness, and it's a beautiful snapshot of the early church. Now, the hypocrisy within threatened, threatened uh, that community and threatened the witness of that community. But now, as the church, as we see the church continue to thrive and God continue to do the miraculous and for them to continue to proclaim the resurrected Christ, opposition is going to threaten to stop it. And as we read on, we find the opposition starting in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and the associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent uh, to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, 
The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Opposition threatened to stop the church. This was a fearful and jealous community versus a generous and sacrificial community. They're filled with jealousy. They're filled with zeal. They're afraid of losing power and authority and influence. Of course they are. And they can't take it anymore. So they arrest the apostles. And you think this would do it. You think, okay, end of story. They got all the apostles and they put them in jail. Done deal. But God provides this miraculous, angelic deliverance from jail. This is divine deliverance. God had brought divine judgment through Ananias and Sapphira, addressing the hypocrisy within. And now he's dealing with the opposition on the outside, and he's bringing divine deliverance. In the face of hypocrisy, under the weight of opposition, God's people are standing strong. They're resting in him. The temple authorities can't figure it out. What in the world? How do these guys get out? And the next scene we see, followers of Jesus, they keep living out their new identity. Now, last Sunday, we talked about who we are, our identity. We're called out and we're sent in. We're called out of darkness. We're called out of shame. And we're sent back into the world on mission to proclaim with our lives and our lips the reality of Jesus, his resurrection, his power. The apostles... The new church, the early church, they were called to the same thing. And they were living that out faithfully as a generous and sacrificial community. And they were spending themselves and they were giving themselves to, the, to teaching God's word and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And even in the face of hypocrisy, even in the face of opposition, they were doing it. They were standing strong because God was with them. And now they continue to do it. Look what happens. Look at their answer to the high priest. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, uh, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Oh, he too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, 
that you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, these followers of Jesus, they keep living out their new identity. Oh, we know what you told us, but we have to obey God. We have to. God is not ours to control, but he is ours to trust. Oh, he is holy. He is just. He is all-powerful. And he is good. They say the message we proclaim, oh, they're saying it has everything to do with the God of our fathers. You hung Jesus on a, on a cross You hung him on a cross, but God exalted him to his own right hand. And this speaks of the position and authority and equality of power. And and, and Jesus is prince. Uh, He is is leader. He is savior. And they answer why God did this. Why did God do this in, in Jesus? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be available for you, is what they're saying. And they were witnesses, and so was the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is such a provocative message where they're standing. In the temple courts before the Sanhedrin, the council of elders, those with all authority and power, representing the temple in every way. And why is this so provocative? Because they're saying forgiveness can't be found actually in the temple sacrifices anymore. It's found in Jesus The temple has been the center of spiritual life, but it's coming to an end. The sacrifices, the the Passover celebration, the Day of Atonement, it's all reached its final purpose and fulfillment in Jesus, is what they're saying. Now, this Gamaliel, I don't know if I'm saying it right, this guy, he he was the most respected rabbi of the time. Eventually, we find that he was the teacher of Paul himself. And he asks this big question. Is this new way from God or is it a a purely human invention? And and listen, that's the question we should all be wrestling with as well. If if you're new to this, if you're new to local church St. Pete, if you're new to investigating the claims of Christianity, I know you're asking that question. Is this of God or is it of human origin? It's an important question to wrestle with. If it is God, he's saying uh, to the council, uh, to the Sanhedrin, he's saying, listen, if this is God, you can't fight this. You'll be fighting against God himself. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're fighting against God himself. Maybe you've understood these claims to be real. Maybe you've seen Jesus for who he is, but you're wrestling with letting go of what you think is going to bring you happiness, of what you think is going to bring you joy and satisfaction. Are you wrestling? Are you, are you fighting against God? Finally, we see that they determined to flog the apostles. This is severe beating. Severe beating. And then they ordered them not to proclaim Christ anymore. The apostles' response, celebration and joy for, being, for suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. And they continued on in the temple courts 
and from house to house and never stop proclaiming Jesus. The authorities of the day, the religious authorities of the day and all their opposition could not silence the witness and the mission of the church. Hypocrisy couldn't do it and opposition couldn't do it. Hypocrisy and opposition, it threatens to undo what God is doing here. I've been around pastoral ministry for 20 years. I've seen my share of hypocrisy among leadership, and it's painful. And I'm sobered by it. I want to be on guard against it because I'm not exempt from it. I could fall prey to it. We all need to be on guard against it. And I've seen my fair share of opposition. Hypocrisy and opposition are a threat to what God is doing here. But that's all it is. It's a threat. It's not too much for God. He's with us. He's for us. Because anyone who finds himself fighting against what God is doing through his people, they find themselves fighting against God. God's word, God's work, God's mission will prevail. Who are we in the face of hypocrisy? Who are we in the face and in the midst of opposition? Are we going to keep living out our new identity? Or will we buckle under the pressure? As we live out our new identity, as followers of Jesus, will we be humbled and encouraged that God is not ours to control, but he is ours to trust? Let's pray. Father, thank you. We've been given this beautiful example of what the early church looked like, how they functioned, but also you've given us this clear warning of the hypocrisy that can just try to undo it all and the opposition that could try to do the same. But Lord, thank you for your faithful presence and work, your sustaining grace in the life of the early church. What, a, what an encouragement that is to me and hopefully to us as a church, that you're, you're with us and you're for us. And that this hypocrisy and this opposition, is, it's not too big for you. Lord, help us to keep living, to keep living, to keep practicing this new identity that we've received in Christ. We trust you, Lord. Amen.